This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Jim Birkenstadt is with us, the rock and roll detective and uh, discussing his latest book, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. We were talking about why rock and roll is uh, so ripe for, for legends and mysteries. And uh, you've got things like, you know, the 27 Club. You've got um, so many musicians, Hendrix, Joplin, um, uh, uh, Jim Morrison, uh, Kurt Cobain, who all died at the age of 27. And of course, this just feeds into the whole mystique. And we were talking about Robert Johnson and the deal with the right. devil. And um, what do you make of the, the 27 Club? Is that, is, this, is that just, you know, there's so many musicians out there working and you combine, uh, you know, too much money and too much uh, access to, you know, sex and drugs and uh, it, it, it just the, the perfect storm. Is that what this is all about? I think so. You know, I think, uh, tw- you know, for people who um, are older now and they look back, if they think back to the 20s, 20, the, the, at least the, as I recall it, the 20s are a time when you really have to figure out who you are and discover yourself. And you, you change your mind a lot on a lot of things. You're, you're still figuring out your place in the world. You're now a young adult. And, you know, a lot of people start out as regular everyday people, but next thing you know, they're thrust into, because they wanted to play guitar, suddenly they're in a very successful band. There's a lot of women coming around and there's drugs and there's all kinds of things going on. And, and then the constant fame of people telling you how great you are and you see yourself on TV and the news, etc. And... You know, I think it can be very uh, difficult for some people psychologically. You know, in the case of uh, Kurt Cobain, he had come from a broken home. He uh, never felt like he exactly fit in in high school. And, you know, so and John Lennon, who, you know, his parents broke up and he ended up having to grow up with his aunt. You know, those are those are difficult, traumatic events in a young person's life. And you can just see how they might affect you as you get into your 20s and cause you to do some, maybe make some bad choices. And, you know, a drug overdose could be just a, uh, a basic mistake that occurs one night. You know, nowadays we have terrible things like fentanyl which get mixed in and such and people die. But, you know, they, back then they could die from just a mixture of drugs with some alcohol, et cetera. And so I don't think any of those 
27 club people necessarily wanted to die, although, well, other than Kurt Cobain, who, who committed suicide, but it was very difficult for him, I think, to suddenly be the most beloved artist of his generation and go, well, why is it me? You know, I, I was rejected in high school and my parents broke up and, you know, I, it's just a, it's a tough thing. I think a therapist could answer these questions much better than I can. But I do know that the 20s are a difficult time. Do you think, speaking of the 27 Club, Jim Morrison, also 27, that he kind of romanticized that idea of dying young, you know, because he, he, he was so enamored with the, the young French poets uh, mm-hmm. that that may have sort of fed into it. He had a death wish, perhaps. Yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. Um, I never really investigated uh, the 27 Club, mainly because I think it's just a bit too morbid. And, and also I think it's just, uh, you know, coincidental that, that they all died at 27. So, uh, one of the chapters in the book, of course, is, uh, dealing with the infamous meeting, uh, or relationship between the Beach Boys, namely Dennis Wilson and, uh, serial killer cult leader, Charlie Manson. Um, so how did they, uh, how did they, Dennis Wilson, that is, and Charlie Manson, who was just freshly out of prison, I guess, a couple of years, how did they, they meet? Well, it was interesting. Uh, you know, the Beach Boys were, they epitomized this clean cut Southern California surfing culture, uh, hot rods, that sort of thing. Dennis Wilson, the drummer, was really the only Beach Boy who knew how to surf. So that was kind of funny. And here you have this other character, Charles Manson, who really represented the darkest evil fringe of the 1960s cultural spectrum. And, you know, you wonder how could these people connect? Well, Charles Manson started to learn guitar while still in prison before he got out. And he, he also at the time was learning all these different sort of Oh, beliefs, you know, whether it was Christianity or um, some other sort of more bizarre uh, religious uh, groups. He was learning how to use sales pitches to get people to agree with you. And so he sort of put all these, you know, crazy ideas together into one uh, belief system and he thought, hey, you know, when I get out, I can use my guitar playing and, and use those lyrics as well to help recruit members into my family or cult. And, and so when he got out, he thought, you know, if I, can, um, if I can get a record deal and get my songs on the radio, this will help me expand my group of women and cult and family members. Uh, because they'll hear my song. And one of the songs he wrote in that time period in in, uh, 1968 was called Cease to Exist. And I call it a recruitment song, but some of the lyrics are pretty girl, pretty, pretty girl, cease to exist. Just come and say you love me, give up your world. And so he was trying to find, you know, women who had uh, run away from home, who were lost, who were maybe damaged somehow emotionally and bring them into the fold and then use his 
crazy belief system to lock them in uh, to do his bidding. And one of the things he decided to do was send women out hitchhiking in hopes that they could find uh, a rock star or someone in the music industry that might help connect him and hopefully he could get his deal. And uh, one day, Dennis Wilson was driving back from a mountain weekend trip and he picked up two hitchhiking girls, brought them to his home, uh, you know, befriended them. And, and they, he was telling them that he had his own Maharishi, uh, same one the Beatles had, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And they said, oh, we have our own uh, guy too, uh, our own guy. His name is Charlie. He came out of prison and, and, and uh, we really, you know, dig what he's telling us. So he left them there. Dennis left them at his house and went off to a recording session with the Beach Boys at Brian Wilson's house. But when he returned, he was welcomed into his own house by Charles Manson. Wow. must have really freaked him out and the whole house was filled with all these women this was a, the, the the two the hitchhikers was it patricia krenwinkel and um yeah. i can't remember the other one but they didn't even necessarily know who dennis wilson they didn't know he was the dennis wilson right away right i don't think right away i don't think until um you know he brought them home and they were just sitting around talking and then you know he had to explain what he did for a living and and explain he was going off to a Beach Boys recording session. So I'm, I'm assuming he told them he was a drummer. Charlie Manson must be thinking jackpot. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, Dennis Wilson became his first attempted entree into the record industry. And along the way, Dennis paid for uh, Charlie to record some demos that he listened to. And the other thing is, so we've talked about what Charles Manson's needs were. His needs were to get a deal, get the, get the word out, grow his family, his cult, try to get on the radio, etc. But Dennis Wilson also had some needs at the time, and these needs ended up matching up with each other with, with Charlie. And that is Brian Wilson was really having mental health issues at the time and was doing a lot of acid. And he was just not in a position to really get out of bed and write any hits anymore. But yet they were still recording in his basement. They were starting a new album for Capitol Records that would be called 2020. And the Beach Boys, the rest of them realized, you know, we're going to all have to step up and, and write some songs to contribute to an album. So probably that was the toughest thing for Dennis Wilson as a drummer who didn't play piano, didn't play guitar, you know, to suddenly have to write a song and add a song. So that's where Charlie came in. And, and one of the songs that was on the demos that uh, Dennis paid for was Cease to Exist. And he decided to um, ask Charlie Manson for that song. And so that's where we get into uh, was the song stolen? Was it, you know, was it okay to change any words? Was it okay to change the title? Who should own the copyright? Uh, so that it becomes um, not just a mystery, but also a legal question.
Right. Um, and I guess the other needs, the other needs that Charlie Manson provided for Dennis Wilson was, uh, you know, an open pocket for drugs and, uh, yeah. you know, access to a lot of, a lot of women, women because Wilson, Dennis Wilson was newly divorced and was right. a bit of a, a party, uh, he lived hard. Let's put it that way. He was a hard he did, liver. He did. That's that's true. And and on the other hand, also, Dennis Wilson was very um, very much sharing with the family, the the Manson family group. He shared clothing. He bought them medicine when they needed it, or sent them to the doctor. He bought them special foods. Uh, they trashed his fancy sports car uh, all told Dennis spent about a hundred thousand dollars when the Mansons were living with him not to mention free rent and, and such and so he also you know was was very generous in that respect but unfortunately he was a bit naive about what he was getting into right right and um, I don't know if this is true but I'd, I'd read or heard that uh, Dennis Wilson I mean he couldn't get rid of them and so he right. ended up moving out of his own house. Yes, well, stay there and then rented actually, another place. It, it's interesting. He actually did not own this house. It was a rental. And so when he went off on tour with the Beach Boys, he used that opportunity to ask his uh, buddy uh, Greg Jacobson to, you know, remove from the house anything that. That the Mansons hadn't already stole a Mansons group had already stolen or had been given, uh, and then he had the landlord um, evict Manson and his group out of the house all while Dennis was gone, and then they didn't tell Manson where he was moving to because he didn't want them to move into the next place. So uh, Wilson and Greg Jacobson moved to a um, a place in Malibu another house that they went to. Right. And, and um, I mean, they tried to produce some songs with, with Manson. What, what was he, what was he like to work with? He was not easy to work with. Um, he didn't like microphones pointing at him. They reminded him of prison life in a phallic sort of way. We'll put it in Oh, that. dear Lord. Uh, and he would make those comments on tape. He fidgeted a lot. He usually was high on LSD, so he wouldn't listen to direction in the studio. He was uh, also not very patient. So he didn't really want to listen to direction and he wanted to immediately become signed to a record. And he, in fact, he played for Neil Young and Neil Young thought he had talent. Neil Young. Uh, went to his record label to try to help Charlie and wisely they turned it down. He went to, uh, they went, took him to um, uh, Mama Cass's house where she sort of had this salon where, where people would come over and exchange ideas and talk and all this stuff. And he was there and he tried to get uh, John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas to get him a record deal and John Phillips couldn't get away fast enough from Charles Manson. So some people could sort of see that he was weird and creepy early on and others, it took a little bit longer. Dennis, did Dennis Wilson, was it Dennis Wilson that introduced uh, Charlie Manson to Terry Melcher? 
Yes, it was. And Terry was, uh, for your listeners, was a famous producer at the time, the son of Doris Day. He had produced uh, The Birds and Paul Revere and the Raiders, and he was very well respected in the industry. And when when uh, Charlie wasn't able to get a record deal with the Beach Boys label, he worked some more with Greg Jacobson, and then Greg said, well, why don't you talk to Terry Melcher? And Melcher went out to Spawn Ranch to listen to Charlie as well. And, and Melcher, you know, being a producer, didn't think that Charlie was ready for a record deal or, or of the quality necessary to be successful as a solo artist. And Melcher at the time, was was he renting or did he own the house on Cielo Drive, 10,050 Cielo Drive? He was renting that house. And um, he may have moved out because of threats uh, from Manson or Manson's family members. Because when he went to Spawn Ranch and listened to him, uh, listened to Charlie play, he used a typical producer's... Um, gentle way of rejecting someone by saying, you know, this is really interesting music. I just don't know how to place it, or I don't know how to place your type of music into the industry. And then he saw that all these people looked really hungry. So he handed Charlie $50. And then Charlie turned around and told his family that he had gotten a record deal and that the $50 was in advance. And later, Melcher had to testify about this under oath, which I include in the book during the uh, murder trials. That no, you know, I would fifty dollars is not an advance. An advance is thousands and thousands of dollars after you sign a big long contract. Uh, but you know, all these all these young people looked up to Charlie and listened to him, and so. Later, when nothing came of that, you know, again, Charlie could get angry and say, you know, well, uh, Melcher cheated us and Melcher lied to us. So, and that's what he did. And so I think when Melcher started to hear some of that, he moved out of, of that house that he was renting. And of course, unfortunately, Sharon Tate moved in. Well, yeah, and Roman Polanski. So is, uh, we just have, we have about a minute and a half here. Um, did Manson send his disciples, if you will, to 10,050 Cielo Drive, thinking that Terry Melcher still lived there? I don't believe so. From the research I did, um, I, I, it was really awful having to research that chapter. Hmm. But I, uh, I read all the books by all the people who were you know, in his inner, in Manson's inner circle at the time. And they all seemed to say that Manson knew he had moved out, but he selected that house because it was a message to Terry Melcher and that Melcher would get that message after, you know, the news of all the murders there took place. And Melcher did get the message and he really, he went underground and hid out. Uh, a lot of people really left the LA area too, or, or just completely stopped going out in public and didn't let people know where they lived, et cetera, if they had any connection whatsoever to Manson after the murders came out. Dennis Wilson and uh, Charlie Manson. 
how much or how did the Manson family's murderous rampage in uh, the summer of 69, August of 69, how did that change Hollywood? How did it change the music industry? It just terrified them. I mean, the 60s had been all about peace and love to the counterculture. Like I said, there were all these people gathering at um, up in the canyon at Mama Cass's house, people from all walks of life, all getting along. Um, and this just sort of shattered the, the peace and tranquility out there. And because there were musicians involved with Charlie, before the murders, and then you had murders of uh, Hollywood-type entertainment people. It just really affected both areas. I remember um, when I was talking about this chapter to Jim Keltner, he told me a story. He said he was um, on tour at the time that the murders took place, and the... Uh, he had just moved into a home with his wife probably a month or so before the LaBianca family was was killed at the same same couple of days there as the Tate murders. And they lived just down the street from the LaBiancas, like maybe a block or two away. And Jim was on tour with, I believe, Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishmen's tour. And so he called home to his wife and, and said, oh, how, how's it going, you know, with the move in and unpacking and all the usual things. And she said, well, uh, I just got like this shock because the police came to my door and they had all this bloody clothing with them. And they asked me if, you know, if we knew anything about this. And then they had told her that the uh, LaBiancas had been killed. And one of the things that the Manson family would do is when they were leaving the scene of the crime, they'd, they'd be stripping off their clothes that were bloody from stabbing these people uh, and throw them out the windows, you know, in the very neighborhoods they were driving away from. So that's what she had to look at. So you can just imagine the horror of that sort of awful thing happening in an area where you wouldn't normally, you know, back then you wouldn't normally lock your car doors. You wouldn't even, some people weren't locking their home doors back in those days. Right. right. What a way to end the decade. Uh, the Manson oh, wow. murders, the, the debacle at Altamont. Right. Uh, really, oh, go ahead. Big downer. You know, just a big downer. I mean, like, Woodstock was generally thought of as a very positive event. And, you know, it's just a shame that those things happened when they did. Uh, getting back into one of the uh, the chapters in Mysteries in the Music, and uh, that is uh, Bob Marley. Mm -hmm. uh, and the whole, the whole question about this uh, assassination attempt against him in, um, was it 1976? Yeah when uh, armed gunmen uh, basically raided his, his home and a uh, spray of bullets. Uh, he was getting, well, he was always, his music was always kind of, you know, I guess perceived as political, but he was not necessarily choosing, you know, sides between um, uh, the, uh, the JLP or the, the PNP, uh, right. uh, Michael Manley, the, the, the prime minister at the time. 
uh, but I guess it was maybe perceived at the time because both the PNP and the JLP, these two rival parties, they had their, they basically had their own little paramilitary units out on the street. So just uh, what, what, what do you think precipitated? What really was really behind that assassination uh, attempt on, on Bob Marley? Well, I think uh, it might help your listeners if I back up a little bit uh, and explain that uh, for quite a while, these big U.S. multinational corporations had been digging up half of the island of Jamaica uh, to mine for an ore called bauxite. And bauxite is used to manufacture aluminum. And um, one would guess that they were, you know, they were employing Jamaicans to help them with the work, which was great, but they probably were paying pennies on the dollar to whoever owned that land to dig up all this, you know, highly valuable ore. So uh, at the time, the prime minister of Jamaica decided uh, he, was, he was moving towards socialism. He had visited Castro in Cuba and that that sort of scared our government quite a bit because we still recall uh, the Russians, you know, pointing missiles at us from Cuba, and you know we didn't we weren't comfortable with Jamaica becoming another socialist island like Cuba. The Cold War was still going on, so uh, Kissinger, you know came down, he was our Secretary of State, and he, he said to uh, Manley, you know, I think you really need to change what you're doing here, and then we'll loan you more money or give you more money and help, help your country. Uh, but we don't like the direction you're going. And Manley turned around and he socialized all the land and all the bauxite and basically told Kiss Kissinger, go home, you know, I'm gonna do it my way. We're going to run the country as socialists, and you can do what you want with your country. <clears throat> so Henry Kissinger and the US government sent down a significant number of agents who were in the CIA, and they were uh, given disguises or fake titles as uh, members of the US embassy in Jamaica which had only previously had like two people in the whole building. So now all of a sudden there were 30 and, and roughly 28 of them were CIA agents. So their goal was to uh, disrupt the election that was gonna be coming up later in the year. And they were hopeful that the, um, the uh, conservative opponent would win the election and that uh, Manley would be out of office and then they could go back to digging digging their ore. Right. Edward Siega, I guess, was the... Uh, the Siega, right. The, the... And in fact, there were signs painted by opponents that would write C-I-Ega <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the fences and things. So it was in this sort of world of, and you, you, you rightly described it as it was like two gangs, paramilitary gangs, were fighting over an election. And so it was pretty violent. And uh, Bob Marley wanted to bring people together. And so he wanted to hold a concert called Smile Jamaica. And just to keep this short, uh, 
he had to approach Manley's government in order to get permission to do it. And uh, Manley basically co-opted the concert and made it look as if he and Marley were together on re-electing uh, Prime Minister Manley. Uh, the poster that I show in the book, the illustration shows, you know, by the authority of uh, Prime Minister Manley's administration, we present Bob Marley and the Whalers. So it really looks like, you know, almost like a campaign concert for him. And Bob was very upset by that, but, you know, he, he wasn't uh, an expert on, on, politics and such. He just wanted to bring both sides together and have a peaceful concert. So the shooting happened literally two days before the concert was to take place. And um, it was a very scary situation. Uh, Rita Marley was driving away at the time and got shot in the back of the head with a bullet. Bob escaped with just a bullet lodged in his elbow. And the whalers were in the other room and when that when gunmen went into that living room where they were rehearsing and sprayed the room with bullets you know they all either ran jumped behind couches or ran into the bathroom or wherever they could go and so uh, oh and bob's manager took five bullets in the back and nearly died he had to be flown to uh miami to be saved so it was a very scary time Right. And, and two days later, there's Bob Marley on stage performing with, I, I believe the bullet was still in his, uh, his arm, if I'm not mistaken. It was, and there was no guarantee that he was even going to play. I mean, uh, he went through a lot of heavy thinking at the time. And um, the one of the reasons why this uh, CIA conspiracy theory came up was that the, the, the main cameraman hired uh, to film this concert two days out was named Carl Colby. And Carl Colby was the son of William Colby, who had been the director of the CIA. Just take a quick time out, uh, Jim, and we'll pick up on that point. Jim Bergenstadt, the rock and roll detective, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, the latest book. Back with more in a moment. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As you know, GetTheTea.com has been a sponsor of my show for quite some time. Their all-natural life change tea with a unique blend of 12 herbs has helped many of you to keep your digestive tract clean and healthy. It's so easy. You just brew, steep, refrigerate, and drink. One to two glasses a day helps keep your insides clean. You shower on a daily basis, right? So why not shower your insides with this delicious herbal made in the USA tea that has helped thousands. GetTheTea.com is not a fad. They've been around for 14 years. It's an essential part of my life. My favorite is the pomegranate tea. 
and they're giving it to you for $8 off exclusively for my listeners. Why not make it an essential part of your life today? Go to getthetea.com slash Richard. That's getthetea.com slash Richard and save today. Remember, it's easy. Just brew, steep, refrigerate, and drink. Keep your gut healthy. They also carry an amazing variety of natural herbal supplements. Check them out at getthetea.com. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. The rock and roll detective Jim Birkenstad. Mysteries in the music case closed. Again, how do we get a copy, Jim? You can go to my author site, musicmysterybook.com, and order either signed copy or you can click through to Amazon. You can also go to amazon.com, type in the title. It's also at barnesandnoble.com and um Wherever books are sold, you can ask for it there. We're talking about uh, the assassination attempt against uh, reggae, reggae star Bob Marley and at his home. And uh, two days later, after his house is sprayed with bullets, as you mentioned, his manager took, took five in the back, miraculously survived. Big discussion as to, well, his, his wife, Rita Marley, took a, a bullet in, in the back of the head. Then there was a great discussion as to whether he would perform I think everyone around him was trying to talk him out of it. Did he not just insist, you know, the show must go on? No, I, he, I mean, he wanted to play, but at the same time, he thought, am I going to be a sitting target up on stage? You know, you're not, you're not in a, you know, here he was hiding out in an undisclosed location for his safety. And now he's expected to come out in front of thousands of people and just stand up on a stage. That's a pretty frightening thought. And I think ultimately everybody, you know, left it up to him to decide what he was going to do. There's and that he was very brave to to go back out there after that. Right. There's that famous photograph on stage where he is clasping hands with Prime Minister Michael Manley and the uh, the leader of the PNP, Edward Siega. Um, Siega looking, I don't know, a little uncomfortable <laughs> with the whole situation. I mean, it's it's possible that he that he was that Bob Marley was standing up on stage with one of those two people that maybe even ordered the hit. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I should mention for your listeners that picture took place a year later at another. Oh. But on the on the night of the concert after the shooting, neither of those candidates were up on on stage ah thank you for the clarification that was a year later ah okay it was about a year later uh but you know nevertheless same you know you, you brought up the same question you know was he standing there going i wonder which one of these guys might have had something to do with this uh and then of course there are people who think that the u.s and the cia had something to do with this so i actually spoke with uh the chief agent, uh, CIA agent, who was down in Jamaica at the time. And I remember calling him out of the blue. And oh, well, I should tell you that I, I couldn't get the, the, the previously classified documents from either the Obama administration or the Trump administration. They both answered my request with the same form letter, which was, we can neither confirm nor deny whether uh, we have any information of CIA records dealing with Bob Marley, classic. which means, yeah, it's a classic line, which means we have them and you can't have them. Exactly, so, exactly. So I actually went to WikiLeaks, which is of course that famous site that has obtained stolen uh, 
government documents from the American government, and there they were. So that helped me find that it had a double list, which was very interesting. It had a list of the names of uh, diplomats and titles, and then it had their their name and their real title with the CIA. So I just happened to pick a name that I thought um, would be easy to Google because it had his middle name and you know it was sort of an unusual name. And so I found him, I called him up. He's retired in somewhere, a, one of the 50 states. <laughs> he wants to remain anonymous, of course. And I said, hey, uh, it's Jim Birkenstadt, the rock and roll detective. He goes, what's that? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I told him I was working on, on this uh, story about Bob Marley in Jamaica. And he goes, oh, I love Bob Marley. I said, so you were, uh, you were working as a diplomat, weren't you, uh, in 1976 when Bob Marley was shot? And then he was supposed to have a concert. And he says, yeah, I was, I was a diplomat. I was the assistant to the ambassador. I said, but weren't you also chief of station for the CIA while you were down there? And he started laughing. And he said, Jim, how do I answer that without getting in trouble? And I said, I think you just did. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was very interesting to talk to him and get his perspective on what their priorities were, the CIA priorities. And I'll leave that to the reader to, to, to see that, read that. It was also interesting, I spoke with Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, Ooh. who many people remember got in trouble with the- uh, Iran-Contra. Sort of, yeah. yeah, Iran-Contra and drugs for arms and all of that. And I said to him, now, I know you didn't work under President Ford, but you worked under the next Republican president, which was Ronald Reagan. Did you ever talk to Gerald Ford? And he said, as a matter of fact, I did. He said when you come into that position of national security advisor, you always like to go back to the previous administration that's from your party and talk to that president about situations that were going on in different countries. And I said, yep. oh, that's interesting. I got to tell you, it's great to be talking about rock mysteries and rock legends again. Uh, it's not something I've had an opportunity to discuss on the radio since the passing of my late collaborator, R. Gary Patterson, who, of course, was a frequent guest on this program. And uh, Gary passed away. We're coming up on the fifth anniversary, May 26th, which coincided with the 50th anniversary of the U.S. release of his favorite album, The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Very fitting that Gary would die on that date. And uh, Gary and I, of course, were preparing to launch a radio program on rock and roll myths, legends, and curses when he died. And then I continued on with the project and launched a podcast instead called The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, which was produced in conjunction with Westwood One and the Chris Jericho Network. And I produced about 40 episodes, I think, of the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. And I'm very proud of it. People ask me all the time, where did it go? And is it coming back? Uh, it's not currently available anywhere online unless you happen to be a Patreon donor. But who knows? One day, one day, maybe I'll bring it back and start producing new episodes. It was a lot of fun. We were talking about um, uh, Oliver North, uh, who worked under... Uh, Ronald Reagan, the Ronald Reagan administration, and you were asking him about 
uh, Gerald Ford's administration, which uh, happened at the same time as the assassination attempt against Bob Marley in 76. So Marley did talk to the Ford, or sorry, uh, Oliver North did talk to Gerald Ford. And what did he do? Well, he, he asked him what happened. He asked him whether the United States would have considered um, uh, assassinating a, a non-elected person and, that, and also what in general the CIA was doing back then, because uh, if, you, if you go back to the US history books and look at the 70s, you'll see that the CIA was creating regime change in other countries by assassinating leaders. And um, he taught, and so North also pointed out that uh, during the time Gerald Ford was in office, uh, Congress held a number of hearings on this and, and, and came down pretty hard on the CIA in 1976 and said, we don't want any more assassinations and we don't want any more uh, manipulating regime change in other countries. And uh, it was a bill, it was passed as a bill and Gerald Ford signed that bill. Uh, again, I'll leave it to the readers to uh, see what Gerald Ford said and, and what Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North learned with respect to uh, whether or not the CIA started to follow that new legislation or whether they ignored it. All right. Uh, and again, they can find that in Mysteries in the Music Case Close. Speaking of another alphabet agency, the FBI. Uh, and their investigation of um, a one-hit wonder by the Kingsmen. Tell me about that story. Well, uh, many people have heard about this story, uh, that the song Louie Louie was thought to contain obscenities. And it's, it's funny because there are songs now where the actual title is an obscenity. There's a song I'll just refer to as W.A.P., which was a big hit last year, and you can Google it. And just the title alone would seem to be obscene. Yet at the time in 1964, uh, Robert Kennedy, who was then attorney general, after his uh, brother John F. Kennedy had died, he was still attorney general. And he got a letter claiming that Louie Louie contained obscene lyrics. And so he passed it on to the FBI. And the FBI then spent the next two and a half years. And, and uh, in today's money, $62 million in taxpayer money. Oh, my. Yeah, to, to look into this. And it, it became a witch hunt. And I went through over 100 pages of uh, the unclassified now documents of what the FBI did in their investigation and was completely aghast at what a horrible investigation they did and how how poor it was done you know like somebody puts on headphones and turns the record backwards plays it at a different speed yet they're not thinking about oh maybe we should listen to the record and have the official lyrics next to us while we listen to the record and read the words. Or maybe we should um, 
maybe we should interview or find out, maybe we should find out who the lead singer was on that, on that recording and talk to him. So there's just a lot of mistakes made and uh, they never came to any sort of real conclusion. They just sort of let the investigation peter out. But along the way, there are quite a few interesting surprises that I uh, that I'll leave to the reader again because it's so it, it's the funniest sort of Keystone Cop investigation I've ever looked at. And you know, I think it's fun to poke fun at the FBI when they deserve it. I think Absolutely. most people agree with that. The FBI involved in a witch hunt. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? It? Were the Kingsmen aware that they were being surveilled and, and uh, or I don't know to what extent they were surveilled, but investigated? They were surveilled. They sure, and they knew about it because they saw the G-men standing in the back of these uh, uh, dance halls that they were doing a tour for because Louie Louie had become a big national hit. And of course, the more that kids in playgrounds started writing out what they thought the lyrics were, uh, the more that just sort of created an interest in, in kids wanting to buy the record. So it was a big hit. They're touring and the FBI, you know, were the only people in the dance halls wearing the famous dark hat, dark suit, you know, glasses, etc. And the rest were, were school kids, you know, going to a dance. So what was interesting was the FBI was trailing them on the tour. And one of their thoughts was, well, since we know the recording must be obscene, they'll have to actually sing live the obscenities when they sing Louie Louie. And of course, that never happened. They sang the actual words. And eventually, uh, as I describe in the book, um, they corner the band uh, in a uh, like a little banquet room of a hotel where they're staying. You know, they kind of surprise them, hustle them all in read them their rights, but don't give them the opportunity to call a lawyer and start questioning them. And so I have their questions and answers in there. And then I also point out what the FBI failed to find or ask some of the questions that they should have asked. And again, it, for me, it comes from being a former trial attorney and knowing when you're investigating something, what the relevant questions should have been and weren't asked. So the Kingsmen, that was a, the, they were a one-hit wonder. Is that because, were they derailed their career because of the FBI investigation or was, was it just simply they were a one-hit a one -hit wonder band? I, I don't think that that investigation derailed them. They continued on and uh, they recorded more music. Uh, I just think that they were a one-hit wonder band. It wasn't even their song, you know, it was a cover, cover song. Well, it's a great story and uh, part of the uh, uh, rock and roll uh, mythology, mythos rather, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. Jim, uh, what a great uh, privilege to meet you and hang out for two hours. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Richard. It was a real privilege for me as well. I appreciate being on your show and I, I really enjoyed our discussion and, and you had some great questions. The rock and roll detective, Jim Birkenstad, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.